Let's pray together. Father God, we come to this time and we sit under these words. Uh, And Father, I recognize that as we assemble this morning, we do come from all kinds of different places. Uh, Some of us have come in uh, this room. We have sung these songs. We have confessed our sins. We have responded positively to your call to worship. Um, And we come here in a spirit of joy and thanksgiving. Father, I recognize, though, for others of us that uh, this description couldn't be further from the truth. Some of us come in here and we feel empty. Uh, We feel uh, even depressed or anxious uh, or saddened or grieving. And Lord, I recognize further that some of us uh, here come in faith, believing in you, trusting in you, uh, looking for answers uh, in the words that have been read and in your spirit. And others of us come here and we have all kinds of questions and even objections about Christian faith. And some of us wonder whether you're real and if you are, if you're good. And Father, I pray that you would uh, give us grace this morning, open our eyes, every single one of us, and show us how uh, you are at work in the person of Jesus Christ. Show us how in the way that matters the most that uh, we are all ultimately the same. Uh, Whatever place we find ourselves in this morning, we have an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, and to be changed by you. And show us how you have addressed this need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Great to be with you. We are in our sermon series that we're calling A Sinner After God's Own Heart, looking at the life of David. And we haven't gotten a whole lot to David yet, uh, although that is changing uh, as of today, uh, because we've been setting up the life of David by looking at the life of Saul. And one of the things that I find so intriguing about the story of David and so encouraging and something I long for for myself and for each of you is the central message that in the life of David, we see someone who is deeply loved of God, and in David's case in particular, someone who is profoundly filled by his very presence, right? That's, if you want to understand the, the cheat sheet of David, right? David is someone who has an abundance of God's spirit, and yet at the same time, he is the chief sinner of Israel, Right? And friends, I, I want that reality not to ever grow old on you. I, I want it not to pass on you because this is the Christian life. The Christian life are the two ideas that you can be filled with the presence of a holy God, that God can occupy your soul, and yet you still find that you can commit some pretty significant sins. Right? That is the message of the gospel. That is the Christian life. And in the story of David, we see it played out in remarkable ways. So we haven't gotten to David's big sins yet. We will. And, um, you know, preaching team here will be debating over who covers which big sin, right? (laughs) But right now, in this passage, I think that we have an insight, actually, into what I might call one of David's spiritual superpowers, right? And I want to frame the question for you in this way. What would it look like for you to be so utterly filled with God's spirit? Right? You know, we're not charismatic, although I like to pretend I am sometimes. Um, right? You want to understand the character of Ironworks? Understand that, you know, like, I'm not a charismatic person, but I kind of like to pretend I am sometimes. Okay? And this is one of those times. What would it look like, dear Presbyterian, boring people? No, never mind. <laughs> what would it look like for you to be filled with God's Spirit? Can you, can you imagine that for a second? What would it look like? 
What would the reality, how would the reality manifest itself in your soul if, if God were to just rush over you? That's the language used of David. It said the spirit of God rushed over him. Right? And we see that, for example, David, David is successful in most of the things that he does. He's successful in battle. He's successful in staying alive, even though he happens to work for someone who attempts to kill him for sport repeatedly. Right? What would it look like for David? It looks like he's successful. But friends, uh, my sense of the story of David is that in this passage, we get one of the most powerful presentations of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God in all of the story of David, right? One of the, one of, this passage presents to us uh, one of the manifestations of God's Spirit in an absolutely unique way. What is that way, I wonder? Well, what we see in this particular passage of, of David's life is we see a profound, real, genuine love for the man who had been trying to kill him for some time. Right? You see, and, and Jesus Christ will actually uh, articulate this in a way that uh, I think does, does bring out the reality that if you want to know what it looks like to be filled with God's Spirit, one of, the, one of the most severe, profound manifestations of the Spirit of God will show up in the way that you respond to those people who are trying to hurt you. You want to know what it looks like to walk with God? Right? You want to know what, what's, what cannot be faked in your life? Look at the way that your soul responds to someone who is trying to do you harm. And that cannot be faked, and that is one of the most powerful, profound manifestations of God's Spirit. Uh, and friends, I want to tell you, it is something that I long to have myself, and I long for each of you to have. Why? What difference would it make uh, if you were able to respond to people who hurt you in a way similar to David, right? What difference would it make? Well, one thing that it would do is that it would make this church community absolutely unstoppable, right? You want, you want to see Phoenixville change? Do you want to see Ironworks grow and prosper? I will tell you one thing that will make this church community absolutely unstoppable is when every single person from the smallest child to the most senior saint opens their soul to new visitors that come in and say, you know what, I want to know you, I want to have friendship with you, I want to walk with you, and that's going to be true even if you do something that hurts me. Right? Church does not have that reputation, by and large. But Ironworks actually has, uh, in our history, we have some, some evidence, evidences of being able to stain those kinds of things. Right? And what I'm saying is, I long for more. I long for more of that for you. I long for you to know that, right? When you are, um, you know, I, I, I can tell when I talk with each of you, right? I can tell that for many of you, you long for, long, for more deep, more real friendships. But one of the challenges to that is, is that, you know, we do this little dance. We say, well, I'm going to open myself a little bit to you. And then you hurt me. And then, boy, am I pulling back. Boy, am I out of here. Boy, am I just moving to the side. And I, and I watch people do that dance, and then they say, oh, I'm going to get a little bit closer. And then, oh, you know, right? What if you were able to love genuinely even if you were hurt in response? What if that were true? What would the result be? Answer, something that our town could make zero sense of. 
and something that would have such profound spiritual power that we would see the very powers of darkness, uh, I think, quiver in their place. So this really is what I would call a spiritual superpower. I wanted to call it the holy grail of the Christian life, but that sounds a little wrong, you know, and I don't quite understand what the holy grail is, and um, I have to talk to Sam about that. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, this is a bit of a spiritual superpower. So what I wanna do is I wanna walk through this passage and I wanna make some observations uh, in how David responds to the news of his enemy's death uh, and try to ask the question, how can you, how can you walk with God in such a way that you can experience this manifestation of his spirit in your relationships? What might that look like? So let's get into it together. Uh, just to set up some context before, for you because we haven't gone through every passage. Uh, in the previous, uh, so this is 2 Samuel 1, in the previous chapter of 1 Samuel, right, we see Saul falling on his sword. And of course, an interesting detail comes out that differs from this passage in uh, the way that 1 Samuel uh, recounts Saul's death. Saul does, in fact, fall on his sword. And of course, in this passage, the Amalekite who uh, is telling David the news takes responsibility for killing Saul. So that's a bit of an interesting uh, difference that comes up. And previously, David has been on the run from Saul, right? Saul uh, first attempted to kill David, and David would just show right back up to work and be like, hey, boss, what do you got for me today? And he's like, you know, I got your death. And he's like, okay then, right? But things escalate to such an extent that David is on the run, and, you know, he even seeks asylum with the Philistines, which I, I don't know if you find that interesting. I find that incredibly interesting, right? It'd be like, you know, it'd be like someone in Ukraine seeking asylum, you know, in Moscow. Like, how does that even work? Right, but David seeks asylum. They, they don't kill him, but they also don't give him the asylum. And he's on the run from Saul. And, and all the time, you know, he is anxious and wondering whether he is going to survive. And then he gets this news. Right? And, and I, try, I want you to try to imagine yourself in the mind of this news bearer, this Amalekite lad. Right? So here this person comes. He brings the crown. He brings the jewel. He goes to David. And he's like, I got news. Right? My Lord, he says, I, I want to bring this to my Lord and tell you basically that your enemy has perished. Right? And then he further takes responsibility for it. He's like, and I'm the one that made it happen. Right? And this, this person would be in for the surprise of his life, wouldn't he? As he tells David these things, you know, and, and he's expecting this significant power shift, this significant change. Um, and he more than likely, in my sense of it, wants to be on the inner circle, right? And, but how David responds absolutely shocks him uh, in, in, in ways that really cannot be adequately articulated, right? Because ultimately, he will lose his life that day. So he tells David, and David um, and all that are with him, they mourn. But then what David does is interesting. Uh, I want to point out a couple things. The first is in verse 23, we see that David mourns for Saul and Jonathan, but he doesn't just mourn for them, he honors them. And I want to ask you this question, right? Can you imagine having, having someone who's so profoundly against you, right? To the point of, you know, most of us, I was telling someone before the service, you know, this, the, giving them the cliff notes of the sermon, you know, so they could like text if they wanted to or something. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Right, but I was giving the cliff notes of the sermon, saying, yeah, this is what it's about and everything. And they said, you know, but I don't, I don't know what it's like to have a real enemy, you know? Maybe if I lived in Ukraine, I might feel like that, you know, towards the invaders. I don't know. And, um, 
You know, perhaps you're sitting here thinking that, saying, I don't, I don't really have, like, an actual enemy. And, you know, the sense that I would have uh, as your pastor walking with you is that you don't have enemies, perhaps, not like this at least, but you have people who hurt you. And I watch you respond to those people. And I think there's a little bit of relevance uh, in this teaching uh, to address that. And so here's David, and he has a far more extreme version of this than, than I have or than you have. And what does he do? He responds to the death of his enemy by honoring him, by honoring him, by mourning him. Uh, and then he actually uh, in, involves this lament in the worship of Israel, right? That's what's happening where he says, uh, this is written in the book of Jashar, right? Book of Jashar is pre-biblical text that um, is referenced to a couple of times in scripture. And so this this uh, lamentation over Saul would become part of the worship of Israel. So here you have someone who's responding to the death of his enemy saying, his honoring him needs to be remembered, right? Isn't that striking? And friends, I'll tell you that, you know, and this is actually probably the easiest part of the sermon. So if you're like, Darren, this isn't hard, I know. But here, here's the thing, right? When someone hurts you, what's, what's one of the very first things that you can do uh, in response to that. An answer is, honor them where honor is due. You know, and, and notice that David doesn't lie about this, right? He doesn't say, you know, Saul was just a champion for life, right, as he was trying to spear him down. He doesn't lie about his sins or about his issues, but he does say, he says, Saul was mighty in battle, right? They, uh, Saul and Jonathan, uh, they were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. So that's the first thing that he does is that he honors him, the second thing that um, I want to bring out that really comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount on this very topic, right? If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will bring out this and he'll say, you know, it's easy to love people who love you back. But when the Spirit is in you, what you do is you actually love those who are against you. And that's the second thing you do is you pray for them. And friends, I want to tell you that this has been something that I have been considering now for a couple of years uh, as I've walked with you through some of the situations that I've been referencing here, you know, what is the, one of the most powerful things that you can do uh, in response to being hurt by another human being, particularly someone in your family, right? Or someone, you know, a friend or someone in the church or uh, someone else that's close to you. And I'll tell you that, you know, as I was reflecting on this passage, again, I don't know anyone who's like, I don't know anyone who has a lot, I don't know a lot of people that have enemies that rise to this level, Right? But I do know that many of you have experienced profound pain from other human beings. Uh, and, and I've watched you struggle and respond to that. And what Jesus says is, his, um, his counsel to us is he says, you know, love your enemies, which frankly seems impossible. Right? That's something that, you know, you, uh, it, it seems impossible to respond to someone with, with that kind of affection. But the second thing he says is, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. And friends, I will tell you that it's the matter of prayer that has actually been uh, kind of a pastoral tool that I think has become underrated in your life and in my life, right? So one of the things that I've discovered um, is as an absolutely empowering tool is, you know, and it's interesting because I do see this played out perhaps in marriage more than anywhere else. I see folks come to me with complaints about others, right? You know, this person... This person doesn't do this, they, but they do the other thing. They don't, uh, they don't attend to my needs. They don't do this, all these things. And, you know, in some cases, I'm like, yeah, that sounds really hard. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, when you say this to me, I'm not sitting there, like, judging you, like, would you grow up? I'm like, 
I don't know what to tell you. That sounds, that sounds rough, <laughs> right? And, you know, one of the things that a complaint is about another person, you know what a complaint about another person is? It's oftentimes a misplaced prayer. You see, when Jesus tells us, he says, when you are in relationship with folks and you're being hurt and, and, and you're, you're basically running for the hills, right? He says, the thing to do is to pray for them. And I, and, I, and I want to set this before you as a tool, because if you're wrestling with this, if you're tempted to write someone off, if you're tempted to just bolt from someone, one of the things that you can do is you can bring before God your list of complaints and say, God, here's my, here's my friend, and would you change him in these ways? Would, 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 his soul, would his soul be open to these things that I am finding so difficult? And I want to ask you a question. Have you ever prayed extensively for someone in your life in these ways specifically? And it's not hard, by the way. All you have to do is just write down your complaints about someone, right? Write down the things you really feel, and then turn them into prayer requests. That's all you do. Super easy, right? And, you know, what I find is that um, things that, that really come up and matter so much, you know, folks are talking about them anyway. Just turn them into a prayer request, just to tell them to the Lord. And here's what you'll find, right? You'll find a couple things when you do that. The first is, you'll find that some of your complaints are a little maybe misplaced, right? Because it's one thing to like complain to a friend about something, oh, this is all so hard. It's another thing to talk to God about it, right? It's another thing to talk to the Lord. And so sometimes you find, eh, maybe that, maybe that complaint's a little misplaced. Here's the second thing that'll happen. You will find that instead of, instead of these complaints drawing you away from someone, that something kind of magical happens when you talk to the Lord and that you find your heart being softer to them. You find your heart actually being more inclined to them. And, and I do want to say, by the way, um, I want to clarify something that actually comes up in our passage. And that is this, right? Like if you're in a relationship that has real abuse, right? So perhaps that is your story or situation. You know, don't, don't interpret this sermon as saying, well, you should just stay and submit to that. How do we, why do we see that? Well, David did kind of go to the Philistines, right? I mean, here's Saul, who was, I think, meets the definition of an abusive man, right? I don't know what the definition is, but like trying to puncture the neck with a spear repeatedly probably meets that definition, right? So if that's true of you, hopefully it isn't, God forbid, right? But if it's true of you, like, come and talk to the elders and we will provide you housing, right? Uh, but yeah, if you're in an abusive relationship, don't, don't take the sermon as saying like, oh, I just have to stay there and pray. No. But here's what you do, I think, need to do. You do need to pray. Right? You need to get, get to safety. You need to find people who will advocate for you, help you. But the Lord's instruction to you is that you do need to pray. Right? And, and for most of you, you know, most of you are not in situations that meet that, def uh, thankfully, that meet that definition. Right? And I'll ask you the question, have you stopped praying for those people in your life that have hurt you? Have you stopped? And, and then I would ask you a question, why? So Jesus kind of gives us this uh, instruction. He says, you know, pray for those who persecute you. Um, not, you know, and it's, it's one thing to say, oh, just pray for their blessing. And I'll tell you, pray for your complaints, right? Don't just simply pray for, for blessing, which I don't think most of you do anyway, <laughs> right? But pray for, pray for the specific things you want changed. Lord, would this person become a little kinder? Lord, would this person become a better listener, right? Arti write down your complaints and then turn them into prayer requests. So that's the second thing. Uh, and, I, and I'm drawing that predominantly from 
the language of Jesus. But here's Saul, here, I mean, excuse me, here's David, and this is what happens. He hears of uh, Saul's death, he laments and mourns, he executes uh, this person who, um, which, I, by the way, I think that uh, the narrator in the previous passage makes it clear that Saul did ultimately fall on his sword. He tried to get someone to take his life, he was unsuccessful. I believe that he fell on his sword, and I believe that this uh, person who's telling the news was fabricating it in order to get in with David, and boy, did he make the miscalculation of his life, right? I don't think that, um, I think that Saul really did fall on his sword, is, is my analysis of the text. So, yeah, so David um, responds in these ways. He pens this lament. He uh, in, includes this in the worship of Israel. And so we have, um, you know, we have these two things, right? We have, what can you do? Number one, you can honor people. Secondly, you can pray for them, and I mean really pray for them. But there's a third thing that comes out in this passage that I found to be curious, right? So the language that, that David uses as he talks about Saul was he says, you know, Saul was the Lord's anointed, right? What does that sound like to you, right? What does it sound like to be the Lord's anointed? You know, we used to sing this song, you know, holy and anointed one. Back when I was in youth group, classic, right? But we used to sing to Jesus being the anointed one, right? And, and here's David saying, you know, not only did they act unjustly, but they, they took the life of the Lord's anointed. What is that? David is making what, we, what theologians call a messianic statement, that, that these folks were guilty of taking the life of the anointed one, right? And even in this passage, what you see is you see a reference to the life of Jesus Christ, who himself would be executed, who himself would, would suffer a horrible death, a shameful death, but in Jesus's case, not true for Saul, but in Jesus's case, he would suffer that death so that his actual enemies, namely you and I, in all of our unbelief and all of our sins and all of our struggles and all of our prayerlessness, that, that his enemies could experience everlasting life, everlasting joy, with the focus being that you can be filled with his very spirit, right? That you can be a sinner that you can continue to wrestle with treating people poorly. You can wrestle with unbelief. You can wrestle with all the sins of the flesh. You can wrestle with being greedy. You can wrestle with sexual impurity. You can wrestle with uh, not willing to, to pray for your enemies, but having a cold heart. You can wrestle with all these things. And yet, you still have access to the Spirit if you'll turn to God today, if you'll turn to Christ. And that is the invitation of this passage is that what we see in Saul was we see a heart that went beyond the point of no return in its hardness, right? It sinned over and over and over again, turned away from God over and over and over again. And he went really beyond the point of no return. His, his heart was hardened beyond repair. But you and I have an opportunity today to hear the teaching of this passage and to ask the question, where is my heart hardened? And how might I seek the Spirit of God to change me to be like this? To change me so that, you know, instead of just being a sinner, that I would be a sinner who is after God's own heart. And what David does, I think, in this passage is he makes reference 
to the anointed one of God, the holy one of God is, is how he's also described. The one who would come, who would live among us, who would live among his enemies, who would pray for them, who would intercede for them, and who would ultimately give up everything he was and has so that they would be blessed. And friends, the way, the way into this life, the way into this experience is to drink deeply at this table until it begins to change you. And friends, that is one of the that is one of the diagnostic tools that we have. When we feel our heart being hardened to another person, where you should go is you should say, why am I not experiencing the, the heart of Christ towards his enemies? And the way, if, why am I not experiencing that? If you're not experiencing that today, allow that to be a diagnostic tool to say, I need to come to the table. I need to experience Christ afresh. I need his gospel to be real to me today. So that is where we are going. And friends, I'll tell you that if you, uh, if you experience this reality in your soul, if you, will, if you will treat others in such a way that this is true, this community will be unstoppable. Your life will be so filled with blessing uh, because you will be experiencing the very presence of God Almighty. Let me pray for you. Father God, we do praise you. And Holy Spirit, we adore you. And we thank you that you have treated us with such kindness. Father, as we have uh, persisted in sin after sin, as we, as we have lived lives often of unbelief, as we have hurt others, if we have uh, walked in ways that are displeasing to you, we worship you because you respond to that by giving up your very son on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we worship and adore you and praise you this morning, Lord, and we pray that you would change us. We pray that your spirit would come and be with us and be at work inside of us. Father, we pray that this community would be unstoppable as you do that, as you answer these prayers. Lord, we pray that Ironworks would be a safe haven as a Christian community where we treat each other in this way. Lord, we believe that if that happens, if you hear this prayer, if you work in this way, that this community is, is absolutely and utterly unstoppable. That this is not something that the world has. This is not something that our neighbors know or have ever experienced. Father, we pray that you would do this work in our midst for the glory of your name, for the good of our town, and for the blessing on every soul in this room. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, would you stand?